Good morning. Uh, I want to share some exciting news. You, know, you come in, you see the construction going on out there. This week, we reached 91% of our original $4 million goal to build, rebuild our facility. And that's 353 families have participated to, to give three. $3.6 million. We've had seven new families commit this month. And that's, that is really significant. We have about 10 months left on our campaign. And the more we exceed our $4 million goal, that's less bridge money we have to take out, bridge loan we have to take out. And I just want to say, if you're one of those 353 families participating, we want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You are going to impact the lives of students and families. And uh, I would just love to have seven new families every month. That would be fantastic. So if you could be one of those seven in the month of uh, February, that would be fantastic. But it is so exciting because now we're literally seeing the construction take place. Spaces are holy because they hold people, right? And uh, the, the space we're creating, including the, the renovation of this place, will begin here this year. Uh, it's, it's exciting to see how we're going to be able to interface with students. If you want to give to that, go to southbrook.org. Uh, if you want to be generous today to the church, you can go to PushPay and use that app, or you can use the boxes out on the, the welcome counter. Uh, we're in a series on Romans, but to this month we're focusing on Romans chapter 8, the gem of the New Testament that ends with this more than conqueror's promise. And to be more than a conqueror, I defined it last week as... You're able to experience life on its terms. You're able to express emotion authentically. You're able to expend energy and power when necessary, when life demands that of you. To be a person who's more than a conqueror is to be fully alive in freedom. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just walk through about four verses today, so a shorter section. But this today will confront who you think you are and who God hopes that you think that you are. There's an old story that's a parable. It's a modern take on the prodigal son about a young man who was about to graduate from college. And for many months, he had admired this beautiful sports car that was sitting in a showroom. And knowing his wealthy father could easily afford it, he told him that's all he wanted for graduation was a sports car. Just what I asked of my dad when I graduated from high school or from college. But as graduation day neared, the young man, all he could think about was that sports car. And he just looked for signs that his father had purchased that sports car. And as, as the morning of graduation came, his father called him into the study and told him how proud he was. What an impressive young man he was. He was so proud to be his father. He loved him so much. And then he handed his son this beautifully wrapped box. Curious, somewhat disappointed, the young man opened the box. And inside he pulled out this immaculate leather Bible. The young man's name was embossed in gold on the Bible. He became angry. And he raised his voice to his dad and he said, With all your money you give me a Bible. And he stormed out of the house. Years pass, and this young man was just like his dad, very successful in business, raised his own family, had his own beautiful home, and he realized that as, as children got older, his estrangement with his father was not right. 
and he hadn't seen his dad in a long time, and he started to make arrangements to see him. He got a phone call telling him that his father had passed away. And all his father's possessions now belonged to him. He was the only child. And he had to go home immediately and take care of things. And sick in his heart with grief, he returned to his childhood home and sorted through all his father's possessions. And he comes across that still-wrapped gift Bible from so many years ago. And with tears in his eyes, he opened it up, he turned the pages, and his father had bookmarked and carefully underlined right at Matthew 7:11. Even though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And as he read those words, a car key dropped out of the back of the Bible. It had a tag on the sports car for the sports car he had wanted. And on the tag was the date of his graduation with the words, paid in full in love from your dad. What if our heavenly father has already given us everything we would ever really want? What if we've already won? Would that make a difference today? Have you ever watched a game on record that you knew the outcome of? <laughs> what if we knew? What if we knew we've already won? Look at these words, Romans 8, 14 to 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I'm going to break this down into three parts. That the, the truths embedded here of once you're in Christ, that famous Pauline phrase, what it means to be in Christ. That you have said, Jesus, I want to be in you and you in me. I want to be adopted as your child. The past was fear, the present is fatherhood, and the future is glory. That's a simple map we're going to use today because those three realities affect everything that you do in life, whether you realize it or not. The past was fear, Paul says. For those of you who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God, and the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Now this is the embodiment of the old covenant, this religious uncertainty. Remember the difference between religion and relationship? I talked about this last week. Southbrook have heard this, Southbrookers have heard this for years. Religion is spelled D-O. It's about what you do. Do you do enough? Do you do enough? And relationship, which is what Christ inaugurated, is spelled D-O-N-E. It is finished. It's all been done. You have now been adopted. Not because you earned it, but because you were worthy of it as a creation of God's, as a, as a potential child of God. Now, the basis of all religion, and anybody who ever went to religious school, who's been involved in a very religious 
faith-based organizations, the basis of religion is fear. And the whole idea is that you never know if you're doing enough, and it keeps you in this state of uncertainty, doesn't it? One of my life verses is 1 John 4, 18. There is, it's talking about our relationship with God. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, complete love, it means, mature love, drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love, but we love because he first loved us. The idea here is, is we teach this in Player's Box, fear and love cannot coexist in your brain. You literally cannot experience fear at the same time you're feeling love. And God knew that, and he knew that the light switch of love will always beat fear. But one of the things about religion is it always keeps you in a state of fear. You're almost like a slave on the estate wondering if you're doing enough. And it's powerful, isn't it? Any of you who, who are here because you had to recover from spiritual abuse that comes from fear-based religion, you know how powerful this is. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to play golf in New Jersey at the TPC at Yasna Palana. And that was notable because the TPC at Yasna Palana was built on the Johnson estate of the Johnson & Johnson Company, baby powder. And the family mansion was converted into a $50 million clubhouse. Now, it was built in the 80s for $50 million. I don't know what it would be worth today. Imagine this. Let's say for a minute that you're an orphan. Probably my favorite sports book of all time. And I've read dozens and dozens of sports books. Did that surprise you? Did that surprise you? Got a bunch of Cleveland Browns book for sale cheap if you want to buy some of them. <laughs> but my favorite sports book of all time, I think, is The Boys in the Boat. Has anybody read that book? It is an amazing story. It's just been released in movie form. So if you like the movie over the book, George Clooney did an excellent job in directing the film. But it's the story about a young man named Joe Rance growing up in Washington during the Depression. True story. And he was kicked out of his house at age 14 by his father and stepmother. Partly because they had younger mouths to feed and partly because she didn't like him. Now imagine, this is the picture of Romans 8. Imagine you're Joe Rance. You're 14 years old and you're homeless. You're an orphan. You have nothing. You live in fear all the time. And one day you see this, something like this. You see this enormous estate. And kids of all ages are laughing and playing and enjoying one another in this spacious yard. And then the owner of the estate spots you, sees you standing there, staring through the fence surrounding this estate. And you're gawking and you're dreaming as Joe Rance, the orphan, and this estate owner he happens to be this benevolent father and he sees you and he calls you from his estate and he invite, invites you into his estate. Over the next few days, he builds a relationship. Every day, you come to the fence, he calls you into the estate. And then one day he says, Joe, would you like to live here? Would you like to live here? I would love to adopt you 
and give you the full rights as an heir of my estate. And you say, yes, you have no other options. You're a hungry orphan living in fear all the time. And he adopts you. He pays the price for your adoption. He chose you, and he is your father, and he owns this estate. This would seem to be too good to be true if you were Joe Rance. And he says to you, Joe, this is your home now. I know you're used to living on the street, and you have an orphan identity, and all that comes with that. The fear that comes with that. But I want you to know this place is safe. And you'll learn a new way of life here, a new identity. You don't have to live to survive anymore. You live to thrive. And I want you to stay on this state because I want to provide everything you need. And he sets some boundaries. He says, now I don't want you to play, go out and you know, play around on the street. As an orphan, you used to have to do that. I don't want you to do that anymore. This estate I provided for you has more than enough assets there's some things you need to know. On the estate, there's some plants that, you, that could harm you if you eat those. Don't do that. You'll get hurt. I just want to tell you that. I don't want you to get hurt because I love you, and I know what's best for you. So if you love me, believe in me, do what I ask. Anything I ask of you will not be complicated, and it will not be unreasonable. But I want you to enjoy the yard. I want you to live in it. You don't have to walk around in fear wondering, is there a rule about this estate I don't know about? Can I use the pool? Does the father want me to enjoy the fields? Uh, does the father want me to play the golf course? And, of course, the father will say yes because the wise father invented golf. He's the one that came up with the idea of golf. And then he asks, a critical question. Joe, you've done nothing to deserve all this. Did you, do, do you realize that? And Joe says, yeah. I understand that. But do you realize, Joe, that while you didn't earn this, you're worthy of it? And Joe says, I think I know that. You know, I provided this for you because I've grown to love you and you're an orphan in the streets. Yeah, I, I don't doubt your love, Father. So you know you didn't earn what you've been given, right? But you're free to enjoy it. And if you trust me and you want to stay here, all I ask is that you enjoy it, you thrive in it, and serve your brothers and sisters with what you've been given so that other orphans that are looking through the fence will want to come to my house too. If you understand that story, you understand what Romans 8 is saying when it says, we no longer live in fear. We have an Abba. I'll get to that in a minute. We have come under the rule of the estate of the Father and we choose to live in him and trust in him and surrender to him out of love, not because we have to, but because we've been given something that is beyond our wildest imagination. One writer broke this down. A slave obeys under compulsion because they have to, but a son or a daughter obeys out of love for and joy in daddy. A slave works under threat of pain or loss, punishment, pays back. Discipline for the son or daughter is never retribution, but loving instruction to grow. A slave always lives in the fear of insecurity. If I slip up, my master might beat me. But the son or daughter who's been adopted lives in the security. If I slip up, my father will forgive me. A slave lives under the concentration on external behavior and compliance with rules, all fear-based. But a son or a daughter, concentration on relationship and gratitude. A slave says, I have to work, but I'm not given any honor. But a son or a daughter who's been chosen and adopted says, I'm honored and I'm invited to join the work of the estate. Do you see the difference? Now, why would you ever go back to religion? It happens. It happens that people, sometimes they want that fear-based because they're able to prove themselves. 
I've seen it happen many times here. Someone can go back into legalism and fear-based religion because there's something about it that allows me to show that I'm proving myself. I've earned my way into that club when God says, I saw you standing, staring through the fence, and I chose you. I picked you from the foundations of the earth, the scriptures say. And so that idea of living in fear has passed. We sing that song, I'm no longer a slave to fear. What does it say? What does it say next? I am a child of God. That's it. That's what Romans 8 is saying. Now look at this. Look at this next statement. The present is all about a fatherhood that is transcendent. Romans 8, 15. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Now, the reason why it's important that we see sonship is in that culture, the firstborn son was the heir of everything. So that's why, just like the New Testament calls all of us the bride of Christ and is gender neutral in that way, it, it, men shouldn't be offended that we're called the bride of Christ. Women should not be offended that we're all called sons here because what it's saying in that culture is you are the firstborn heir. That's how you're treated. You're given sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself it testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's really interesting. The word there is, 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 is the word that we get our word parallel, and that the Spirit is always alongside of us saying, you're his child, you're his child, you're his child, you're his child. You've been adopted, you've been adopted. If you will listen. Remember last week when we studied those who think about their mind is set on the things of the spirit, live in freedom and life. You know why that is? Is because the person who enjoys the freedom of the father thinks about this adoption reality. And the spirit whispers, you're a child, you're a child, you're a child, you're a child. No more fear. The, the, the reality of your present is a father who has you, who will have you, and has had you. Now this is so powerful because what he's getting at is our adoption it determines our identity. Now, I want you to see something here, too, that you'll hear people say, we go to one or two extremes on this. One is we don't want the intimacy of, of the Father because people have been hurt by fathers, and that's why we now, this new trend, calling it the universe, is speaking to us. You know, that's all out of fear. It, to, to call him Father is to make myself vulnerable. And if you've been abused by a father, neglected by a father, there's, there's, a, there's an understandability, actually, to that impersonality. But the other side of this that is really important to understand is that many of us, many of us, think that everyone is a child of God. We've been taught to believe everybody's a child of God. Hamas is a child. No, they're not. You have to accept your adoption to become his child. You're a creation of God. Every human being has intrinsic value because they're made in the image of God. But you're not a child of God until you say, yes, I want to live on your estate. I want to be adopted by you. I don't want to be an orphan anymore. Now, this is fascinating because Jesus, in the most famous prayer of all time, this then is how you should pray. Say those four words with me, Southbrook. Our Father in heaven. And the word there for Father is Abba. Abba was the Aramaic word for intimate father. We use the term daddy. We use the term daddy. Again, because how you view God is predominantly viewed by how you saw your father, how you related to your father. That can be jolting for some. 
because this is a, it is a term of endearment. It is a term of intimacy. This is the term Jesus used to address his father. Going a little farther, Mark 14, 35, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Daddy, daddy, father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will I want that to be done. Now, this is remarkable. We're used to, you know, your heavenly father. We're used to that. But Jesus brought about a way of viewing our creator that was an intimacy that was unheard of until he came. The New Testament scholar, Joachim Jeremiah, said, I have examined the prayer literature of ancient Judaism. The result of this examination was that in no place in this immense literature is this invocation of God as Abba, Father, to be found. Abba was an everyday word. It was a homely family word. No Jew would have dared address God in this manner. Yet Jesus did it always in all his prayers, which are handed down to us with one exception, the cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus authorizes his disciples to repeat the word Abba after him. He gives them a share in his sonship. That's what it means. He empowers his disciples to speak with their heavenly father in such a familiar and trusting way. Now, obviously, so many people take this to the extreme of, hey, big guy, how you doing? That's not the idea of Abba. If you've ever had an intimate relationship with a father that you respected, to call him daddy was not disrespectful. It was not so familiar that you were flippant. It was a term of intimacy, wasn't it? Dad. And this is really important because, in essence, the the book of Romans is really about God. It's really telling us what God is like. And, And the most important, everybody has a theology of God. Do you know that? Even an atheist has a theology of God. The most important belief you have is who you think God is. Who who is God? There are four common views of God. Some people view God as a miserable monarch looking over the universe and he kind of has the details of your incompetence do not interest me, right? Because he's this lofty monarch over over in the sky. Some people view God as a paranoid professional. He is this competent being that is always wondering, do they love me? Do they fear me? Would I rather be loved or feared? Both. I want people to fear how much they love me. You know, that kind of thing. Some people view God as an angry administrator. And he's sort of uh, Principal Ed Rooney in his desk saying nine times, you messed up nine times today. How them apples, huh? And some of us do view God as that, that angry principle. Some people view God as a petty policeman, and he's just making up rules to see if we'll break them. And as you can imagine, if you hold those views of God or any other false views, you don't want to have anything to do with him. He's just a necessary evil in your reality, and you actually try to avoid him, right? Your, your whole idea is just like the angry principle. You just want to stay out of his office because that's bad news. And Jesus says, when you pray, the most important part of this prayer begins with our Abba, our dad, who fills the heavens. I had somebody ask me this week, 
why did you go into ministry? And it was, it was at a, a, dinner, a, a lunch setting with a number of people. So I didn't want to go into the actual, well, I went into ministry because I had a hero complex and I felt like I needed to save people. And that's why I now have a heart condition. I didn't want to go into all that, you know. <laughs> but that's the reality. Is that's why I'm in ministry is because I had a hero complex. I said, you know what I think it is? I, I said, I honestly think it goes back to my experience in church while laborious because they didn't have what they have back in the day where they were in here, is my memory of church is sitting under my dad's arm and he's tasseling my hair. That's the memory I have of church. My dad was a strong, affectionate man. But do you know how also my dad affected my, how I view God? So I've never, I've never had trouble believing that God has a love for me. But my dad was gone three weeks out of the month. It was very hard to get his time. And I've always struggled with believing God wants to listen to me. Why? It's because our view of our Father really forms how we first perceive our Heavenly Father. And if you can get this right, you can begin to grow in your adoption that, here it is, the more you get to know the Father, the more you'll want to experience the Father. You don't say, oh, I got to make sure I say hi to dad today because he gave me this estate and I better, I better be thankful. No, you, he's the kind of father you want to know about. You want to be around this dad. Sherry and I always wanted to be the kind of people that our kids wanted to hang out with. And that didn't always work. But we're thankful today that our grown children and our grandchildren, I know this is true, they love being at our house. That's the way God wants us to look at him. Now, how, you, know, you say, God, well, I know God's caring, I know God's compassionate, I know God's competent, and I, I like all those things about God. Do you know what about God that I think is most attractive? Dallas Willard pointed this out in The Divine Conspiracy. What is God's life like? God leads a very interesting life, one that is full of, of joy. Well, God is caring and compassionate and competent. He is creatively joyful. Undoubtedly, he is the most joyful, be joyous being in the universe. The abundance of his love and generosity is inseparable from his infinite joy. All of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul-accelerating joy, God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth and richness. Think about that. That he is, Jesus said, my joy I give to you. And he said in John 14, 9, if, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. You don't know what God's like? He is like this joyful Father, and I want to give you that joy. Willard goes on and he says, uh, he, he, says, he says this, out of the eternal freshness of his perpetually self-renewing being, the heavenly Father cherishes the earth and each human being upon it. The fondness, the endearment, the unstinningly affectionate regard of God toward all his creatures is the natural outflow of what he is to the core, which we vainly try to capture with our tired and indispensable old word we call love. You know what? The way, when I read that, I said, God has your picture on his refrigerator is what that's saying. God has your drawings on his refrigerator. Now, the reason that this is important is this, is that you can call your creator the universe, but I'm telling you it's because you're afraid. 
You're afraid that you're going to get hurt again. And that's the reason I believe that he, Jesus revealed to him as father. It's because that's the only way a trusting relationship can be built. He's not the force. He's not some impersonal power. He is a being who cherishes you. If you were the only person who ever needed it, he would have sent his son to, for you to purchase your adoption, to live on his estate. And yes, yes, there's a vulnerability to that. But I'll tell you this, whenever I go through a prayer every day in which I say, I love you, I trust you, I worship you, and I always include in that prayer, but I do it as a child. Because my love for God is like a child's love. I, 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 don't, I don't know how much I love God. I really don't. I'm a child. I, I, I haven't faced the worst of life. My, my, my love for God, like yours, is a childlike love. But if you can acknowledge that, now you're going places. Because you've gone from being a slave to a son or a daughter. And that's why that is so pivotal. That's why Paul says we come to him as Abba. Look at this last one. Oh, by the way, Romans 8 uh, is telling us this, and I, I want to give this invitation today, that if anyone in this room today, if you say, how do I do this? Acknowledge God as Father through his son, Jesus Christ, then the promise of Romans eight fourteen is that you are his child and he is your Abba. That's the promise. So if today when we get done, you say, I want you to be my father. Through Jesus Christ, you have purchased my adoption from my enslavement to sin. I'm free. And I choose to live on your estate. Then that promise is yours. That's how, that's how simple it is. Even a child can do that, right? Right? Even a child can do that. Now, once you do that, here is your future. Your future is glory. And this is a word used in Romans a lot. Glory. Glory. The glory of God. The Shekinah, which... Which, which no one could really look at. It was so great. And this is the word that Paul often uses to summarize that it's this indescribable reality. Verse 17, he says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. So here's, here's the part of this that's really powerful. He promised, you become a child of God, not everyone's going to like you. You're going to be hated. The world hated me, it's going to hate you. And you're going to suffer for that. It's one of the ways you know you're a child of God. Is that you'll, you'll reach a point in your life where you pay a price for that. You get ostracized, you get persecution, you get fired, you don't get the promotion. There are all kinds of ways that you will pay a price for declaring sonship or daughtership. But he says it's going to be worth it. And we get to the end of this chapter and said, there, nothing compares to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Nothing compares. It's going to all be worth it. Now, many of you know that I've had some health challenges this year, and it's brought about my mortality. I... I, I for, and I've reached that stage where I have really thought, okay, I need to be thinking of the future here. And this quote has, has been on my mind so much recently. Not to make it dramatic, but um, we're all one heartbeat away from passing over. 
But C.S. Lewis once said, there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. And the reason that I don't want to die is I don't want to leave my children and grandchildren, my wife behind. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to. Bob Benson had a book called See You at the House where he, he, he'd gotten cancer and he, and he was diagnosed. He was going to die. And he talked about when he was on the farm when he was a kid growing up and they'd be on the back 40 somewhere and a storm would be coming. And he said, somebody would say, see you at the house. And he said, I'll see you at the house, but I don't want to leave the party yet. Right? Isn't that you? There's so many good things. But what's awaiting us is far, far better than anything we leave behind. Right? It is. I love the way the Message Bible puts this. The resurrection, this resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a child like, what's next, Papa? God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We now know, we know who he is, and we know who we are, father and children. And we know we're going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. And if we go through the hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. Isn't that good? Whatever you leave behind, as a child of God, I want you to know today, those of you who have cancer, those of you who have lost loved ones recently, what we leave behind is nothing compared to what's ahead. Nothing. We've already won. I love this song that the team is going to lead us in. Sit down for just a minute. Stay seated. And just claim your inheritance. You were Joe Rance. And a loving father said, I choose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I ask you first. But come live with me. And this song says it simply. We've already won. Listen as the team sings. Thank you.